Hello, Gary Williams here. Welcome to my In Conversation podcast, a mishmash of chit-chats with friends and influencers across the world. Now, a few years ago, I was hosting a UK radio show where each guest would choose four songs and tell me why they were important to them. Now, due to music copyright issues, I can't share any of that music with you here just the conversation. So the music's gone, which might sound a bit weird sometimes, but I think it's still worth listening to what these great guests had to say. Enjoy. In Conversation with Gary Williams. We've got another great show lined up for you today. I know I always say that, but this time it really is something special. And he's chosen some great music. Aretha Franklin, Sammy Davis Jr., and one of my favourites, Frank Sinatra. He's an award-winning actor, he's a composer, a great musician, he's been in loads of West End shows, he's worked with the National Theatre, which I think is always impressive, he's performed all around the world, from Caesar's Palace, the one in Vegas, not Luton, to the Royal Albert Hall. He's currently working on a show with songwriter Leslie Brickus, I should say legendary songwriter Leslie Brickus, all about the life of Sammy Davis Jr. And if that wasn't enough, he's made a wonderful documentary about Shakespeare which includes this song that's the one you love written and performed by Giles Torreira today's special guest welcome to the program thank you for having me you were able to use that tune in your own film not many people can say that no I wrote it because we, we made a documentary uh, and we traveled a lot we were in America we being? We being um, a friend of mine who went to drama school with called Dan Poole, who's also an actor. We decided to make a documentary about Shakespeare, making Shakespeare a bit more accessible and less terrifying. So we sort of jumped in our car with our cameras and just sort of did it. So subsequently, we had to do everything. So, um, but actually, I knew from the beginning that what I wanted the music to be like and the function that I wanted to have in the music. So when we were on the road, we spent like four years travelling and going around America, going Scandinavia, all over Europe. We went down to Madrid. Um, And while we were in the car, we would always listen to various radio (laughs) stations, one of which, when we were in America, was called um, Simply Sinatra, I think. And it was like a digital thing that just played wall-to-wall Sinatra and his peers. So, you know, all of them, Ella Fitzgerald and that and all the people being Crosby and stuff with lots of Sinatra so that sort of became the soundtrack as we were thinking back about the film it was always that or there was a kind of Americana 70s rock and roll sort of Eagles channel on a Friday evening when the sun was going down and it was sort of this gorgeous purple red sky and then the, the skyline came into view and that's always amazing no matter how many times you see it and I sort of wanted to come up with something that captured that moment and that sort of atmosphere and that kind of feeling. Um, but funnily enough, then we sort of went slightly further back than the sort of 50s and 60s Sinatra swing being big band stuff and sort of landed more in the kind of 40s and 30s. Kind of like the Woody Allen, you know the Woody Allen movies? Of course. And the way he loves all that ink spots kind of music and that sort of jazz, that kind of thing. So that's what I wanted to do with... Um, and had you thought of yourself as a songwriter before that time? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always written stuff. I started in bands and so I wrote music before I acted. And had you, have you recorded much of your own stuff? Before? I haven't. I've, have people heard it? I haven't recorded a lot. So this was a, the movie was a, a great vehicle to sort of share your music... Yeah, I mean, we knew we wanted to... It was predominantly instrumental music because it's a 
soundtrack and there's a lot of t waffling about yeah. Shakespeare so there's a lot of talking but we knew that at certain points we'd want to have some vocals and I actually wanted a friend of mine who's a very very good singer to sing it and we sort of never could get it together. I was busy, wasn't I? You were, you were, uh, <laughs> I tried, in fact it would have been brilliant for you. Actually. It would have, yeah, I know. Um, but it, we never got it together and then Dan said, well you just sing it because I demoed it and uh, so I said, well, well you do it, so I ended up doing Cheaper. it. Cheaper. Cheaper. There's a great part in the film where you are trying to talk to as many experts on Shakespeare as possible and you want to get Judy Dench and you figure the best way to try and get Judy Dench is to send her a big chocolate cake. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. She, um, she was performing at a theatre close by, turned up at the stage door, delivered this cake <laughs> with a card. It's actually that easy. I mean, just send someone a cake. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, Did you send people big cakes no, all the that time was, that now? No, that was the Did first... It, um, it uh, opens doors, you know, send your bank manager a big well, cake. And no, well, we did send another one to uh, someone and it sort of worked, but <laughs> it didn't really. <laughs> but they got a nice cake. Yes. But with Judy, it was just something that... Um, just an idea that popped up and it, it... It was actually in as much appreciation for the performance she'd given, which I had just seen, uh, as well as also because I'd actually written to her before that and she would been she'd been very gracious and said yes we'll do it and then sort of time passed because she's doing bonds and she's always the busiest person in the world so the cake was sort of a, a thank you and a gentle reminder of um, who I was and what we were after what you were after was for helping to make uh, Shakespeare a bit more accessible and demystify and to explain to Ordinary people, yeah. like me, like us. Why? Well, you're not ordinary. You're you're special. Well, but explain to people that that perhaps haven't spent time to understand and study Shakespeare what all the fuss is about. Because yeah. we, we we I'm the same. I I, I see uh, actors on TV talking about Shakespeare and they're going on about how important he is and how it's the, the role that they always want to play and, and until I get familiar with it, I'm much better now than I used to be, but until I get familiar with the piece, I, I, I don't really understand it. Mm. But your film, the aim of it was to sort of demystify the whole thing. Did it work? It did. We get people from all over the world um, tweeting us and emailing us and Facebooking us saying, thank you very much. Um, there was one student. She just she was she said I was I was just about to do the Tempest, and your film helped me, and and that's in a nutshell why we wanted to do it, so that people could kind of be a bit more emboldened, a bit more encouraged to sort of try and find out if they'd like to find out a bit more, if they'd like to see a production, or if they'd like to try it themselves to give it a go, because I think. What you just said hits it on the head, which is I think people, before they realise anything, they realise, oh, I, that's not for me, I don't get that. As opposed to going, okay, well, I'm going to see, I'm going to try. And I think people, the, the, the thing that we found was that people are made to feel like it's not for them. People are made to feel like they won't understand it. And we wanted to sort of get rid of all that. I, I find particularly when I see stuff at the Globe that I don't know what, what it is about their productions, but... I really enjoy myself when mm. I go, and I don't feel like I'm going to something that I need to study yes. hard in advance to appreciate. Well, I think the Globe is a good example because they there they have no set, 
is one thing. There's no, it's not like this thing's flying in and props and set and all that kind of stuff. It's a bare stage, pretty much as Shakespeare did it. And the other thing is that it's there's no light, lighting. It's not in a darkened auditorium. You, as a, I just performed there, and you can see all of the audience the whole time. The audience can see you. So the relationship between the audience and the actors is total. It's not like there's a fourth wall and they're sort of somewhere out there and we have to pretend from the stage that you don't exist. There's that relationship, and therefore I think it's. You've, between those two things, you have to communicate with the audience in a very direct, clear way. You can't be too arty-farty with it and come on with your concept because there isn't the facility to do that. And also the audience get very bored and fidgety and standing the whole time. So you've got to be very direct and very clear. <laughs> and I think that's, that you know takes away a lot of the crap that a lot of our productions put onto things. I always find that when I go there, it's... I, I find it more accessible as well. People say it can be a bit sort of broad, but I think you, what you do get, which you don't get there, is a very real theatrical experience. In Conversation Radio with Gary Williams, the best in music and conversation every week. Tell me about your first record choice, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin, um, wow. She's probably my favourite singer if I did or uh, yeah probably the that's singer, a bold claim probably yeah probably my and I sort of hesitate to say that but I was thinking about it just now and I think she's definitely the, the, the person who I admire most and I'm in awe of most and she recorded this song I Want To Be With You which is actually from a Sammy Davis Jr show Golden Boy um, and she recorded it in the early 70s and it's her playing the piano a lot, a lot of people don't know that she not many people know that she plays the piano so well and she's playing the piano in this song she plays a beautiful sort of jazzy solo Quincy Jones produced it from her album she recorded this album it was in the early 70s so it's her sort of artistic expression album at the same time as the Beatles and the Beach Boys and all that were doing their thing and everyone was making their she made this album called Hey Now Hey The Other Side of the Sky <laughs> And it did terribly. Quincy Jones um, produced it. It took sort of a year instead of three months to do. And But for me, some of her most brilliant songs, she wrote a lot of the songs on it. Not many people know she wrote so well. She wrote a lot of the songs and she had a lot of um, say in how the thing was put together. And I think with hindsight, it's one of those things that people now think, oh, actually, that was a brilliant album. And this song is was recorded for that album but it didn't make it onto the album they recorded like you know 30 songs or whatever and uh, this didn't make it onto the album but for me it's probably one of my favourite songs of hers my mum and dad both came to England my mum from Barbados and my dad from Zimbabwe in the mid 60s late 60s so it was all Motown and soul stuff especially my mum my dad liked a lot of classical stuff and he had a more eclectic taste some jazz stuff and sort of Beatles and stuff but my mum was very much Motown and soul and she loved Tony Blackburn because she said you know he loved black music and he loved soul music and he had great taste and he was always he played all that stuff first so Tony Blackburn was always on and there'd be songs that I'd never heard of I got into music when I was in like a teenager and I sort of prided myself on you know I knew who the Beatles were and the Stones and I was sort of into that I was in a band and stuff and this she would songs would come on the radio that I'd never heard of that obviously weren't hugely famous, and she knew everything. She knew either the lyric 
or the melody or something. You're listening to In Conversation with Gary Williams, the best in music and conversation. Somehow I got turned on to Frank Sinatra and then from that everything sort of just opens up because he's the great American songbook and then you find out about all the writers and the other performers and um, and I, I can't quite remember what the moment was but I, I got into Sammy Davis Jr. through him and Nat King Cole through him and Judy Garland and all, all you know, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, yeah, I can't quite picture the moment but it was somewhere in there. There was a, there was a penny drop. I was always farting around as a kid always doing silly voices you're still farting around I'm you? basically when it comes down to it there's no, there's it no you're difference getting paid now. exactly but the thing was I realised that you could it could be a career and you could get paid for it well I realised you could, you could do it as a career <laughs> because payment thing we'll, we'll deal with that later well that came first and then the other bit because uh, I was always doing like all of us I was always when people came round Giles, get up and do your funny voice or do your funny bit or whatever. I was always doing that. I was my mum told me that I was always singing on the bus as a really young kid, and that was you know I sing nursery rhymes happily to myself, and I was always singing and doing all of that. But because there was no one in my family who was from the theatre or artistic in any way on either side, it wasn't something I realised you could do for a living at all. I didn't. I had no concept that it could be a possibility until and I sort of did some amateur dramatics a friend of mine at school my best friend his girlfriend was in the amateur dramatics troupe in town and so because I she wanted him to do it and because I was his best friend I got roped into doing it and I you know was quite good at that and I sort of got good parts at that um, and so from then and then and then they left because they were slightly older and they said, oh, we're going to, we've left school now, we're going to go to do this performing arts course at college. I said, okay, well, that sounds fine. And they said, we'll come and do that. And then after that, everyone was leaving and they said, oh, now we go to drama school. I had no concept that you, that you could train or anything like that. Okay, so I auditioned for drama school and I came down to London and I got in. And none of them actually got in. One, one of them one of them got in so I sort of found out as I went along that it was a, it was something that you could do yeah I was always doing it and it was always something that really I was passionate about I just didn't realise that I could do it as, as a writer you, you, you must be pinching yourself for your recent uh, association with Leslie Brickus oh yeah I mean I can't really describe that um, Sammy Davis Jr. has been um, an idol of mine. I, mean, I don't have that many idols, but he, for me, is something very special. And his association with Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus, they wrote all of the songs that Sammy Davis Jr. sang. Most of his big hits were written by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus. Going to build a mountain, what kind of fool am I? Once in a lifetime, Candyman, Talk to the Animals, um, and on and on and on. Who can I turn to? Um, they wrote all of the songs. And actually, Leslie speaks very well about how they met. They're both, they were opening their show here, um, their first show, which was the they first being year. Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickers. Without Sammy. Without Sammy. They were opening... Just pre-Sammy. Well, it's, yeah, just barely, because they were opening um, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off here in London. Sammy was opening his show at the Prince of Wales, and uh, Sammy 
was there a week early or something and so therefore he came to see their show and he came to see it every night for a week and that's how they became friends and so Sammy then went back recorded a couple of the songs from it so by the time they got to Broadway their songs were standards I got a phone call one day I got a phone call what? from a friend do you remember the moment oh, I do remember the moment I was walking one I live here in Soho and I was walking to, to the shops and I got a phone call in fact I got a voicemail from um, a producer friend who I've known for a while and he said I've been talking to Leslie Brickers and he's, he's, we've been talking about this Sammy Davis Jr. show and he's looking for he said he can't find he's written this show and he can't find the Sammy Davis Jr. so my producer friend says I stopped him before he'd finished the end of the sentence and said I know exactly the person that you should meet and so therefore, my producer friend left me this voicemail saying, you and Leslie Brickus and I have to get together and talk. So I went down to the theatre. You didn't go to the shops. You went I, to the I, theatre. I floated to the <laughs> shops. Because the thing is that all, every single Sammy Davis Jr. recording I have, and I've got most of his live recordings, he, all he says is, this song was written by Anthony Newley and Leslie And Brickus. you had these recordings. You were already a, a proper, a real fan. You, you, this isn't fan. something that you had to go away and study. No, no. I mean, I'd, at that point, I'd been singing Sammy Davis Jr. songs for ten years or Because I, this, this was the role that you were born to play. Yeah. Well, I just said it. Well, you just said it. I didn't say <laughs> it. But the idea of just meeting the man, and he's, at that point, was 83, his early 80s. Just the idea of meeting him is extraordinary. Because there's so few people around who can talk firsthand about being at the Sands in 1960 with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and Kennedy sitting there and Marilyn Monroe. There's very few people who can talk about that. And, and Leslie was right there. He's a complete part of that And has he world. been generous enough to share those stories with you? Yeah. I mean, the first... We sat down for lunch and, and uh, <laughs> the first half an hour was many instances of and stories of being with Sammy and being with Frank and being with Muhammad Ali and all everyone that I've ever admired that we've all admired um, so we hit it off immediately and, um, and we I decided we you, 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 you got the part yeah right well from that from that meeting he said okay well how do we make it work um, when we, we need to find somewhere to do it and um, and I I know I didn't have to sing or anything. <laughs> I completely went wrong. You can sing. Right, it's going to be a disaster. I sort of thought, well, what am I going to have in the back of my head just in case he says, right, come on. I've got this vision of you in the restaurant, sort of just after yeah. pudding, just throwing the tablecloth aside and standing on the table and going into what kind of fool am I? Well, I thought, you know, that's what potentially it's going to take. <laughs> and that's very sad. You were ready. I was ready. I thought, you know, this is it's not every day you get to meet Leslie Brickers. Um, so I thought, okay, we'll just be prepared for anything. And, and which, which Leslie Bricker song have you chosen? I've chosen Feeling Good. From? From The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. Which, uh, that title always, I always, whenever I would say it, I think I've got that the wrong way around. Well, I think originally the saying is The Smell of the Grease Paint, The Roar of the Crowd, and I think they sort of just were having a little fun, fun with it. And it stuck. And it stuck. Um, so this is their second show. After Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, they wrote... Um, this song, which has probably even more hits in it, um, Feeling Good being one of them. Leslie Brickers, as you said, had an enormously strong association with Sammy Davis, and Sammy Davis has had a, a, a great theme throughout your life, hasn't he? Yeah, I've never known 
any I mean everyone it's, it's so hard to know what to say about Sammy Davis Jr because everyone sort of said it um, how extraordinary talented he was that um, charisma that energy um, the what he could do with a lyric um, that strength that passion that drive that humour how funny he was how extraordinary he was at dancing I did this show here in town the Rat Pack which is how we met many moons ago and uh, the first thing I thought was well I don't I don't look I don't consider that I look like very much like Sammy Davis Jr although Leslie Brickers says that I do and he knew him so that'll do that'll do um, but I thought what I do understand what I do connect with is who he is as a who he was as a person and sort of how he worked as a person and how his personality worked I could connect to and I thought well I'm going to and, and in terms of all of those great artists when they went on stage I think their greatest biography is just listen to their concerts listen to the songs that they chose to sing the lyrics that they chose to sing um, and that will tell you as much about Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or Sammy Davis Jr as any, as any book you can read for me it was important to say okay well who, how does this guy work what is he after what 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 is he trying to do when he's on stage what's he trying to do to an audience why does he have to sing that song why does he have to sing that note at the end um, what is he trying to do and where does that kind of come from within him and I sort of felt I could have a handle on that so I kind of clung on to that and tried to find out as much as I could about him and and try and explore as much of who he was and the, the, the and I found that actually I had a lot in common in many I could sort of understand where he came from in terms of his um, the difficulties that he faced growing up in vaudeville segregation um, the racism all of that stuff and you've had a taste of that growing up in Stevenage well I can completely understand where he's coming from and why and how that could drive someone to want to be so good that he could completely change a thousand people's perception even if it was just for an hour um, he could be so good that for some for a moment even if it was just a fleeting moment they could not see colour. They could not see those racial um, ideas. They could just see a person. Is that part of what drives you still now as a performer? Yeah, yeah. I think but it drives me as a person. Um, the idea of the colour of one's skin being something that people latch onto and make assumptions about or decisions or judgments about um, is something that I have to deal with constantly every day um, and it's very you, you're very aware of it on stage as well I am so I think it sort of goes hand in hand how, how are you all aware of it on stage what, what do you mean with, with your fellow performers with the audience um, with with an audience an audience is a, is a very um, it's difficult to explain like for instance in the, in the Rat Pack show that we did there were lots of uh We'd included in the show a lot of the kind of racial jokes that um, that Frank and Dean would throw around with Sammy, and and it was of the time. It was early sixties in America. It was at the time down in Vegas, <clears throat> and we included a lot of that. And sometimes I would get the f distinct feeling that our audiences were laughing at those jokes, laughing with those jokes as much as at them, um, and that sort of 
in a way it was it was useful because I thought actually well that's something that Sammy Davis would have had to have dealt with right there on that stage and therefore it's something that's still here and I'm going to try and use that as well I think you know that drove him to try and be better I think and to try and put uh, put uh, um, such a positive um, image emotion feeling experience in that audience's mind that he can, can change that a little bit um, and whether and he always struggled with that and whether he sort of succeeded and whether he lost the battle or won the battle or whether it kind of it was damaging for him in the long run remains to be seen but um, that's what he was that's what was important to him make a request leave a comment tell us what you think visit inconversationradio.com today the trajectory is usually quite straightforward for an actor it's you leave drama school you get a good agent yeah. you do some good theatre which gets you to do some good TV and you can get a nice film then you can go over to American Hollywood then you can do really good films and then you can win an Oscar and that's that's your trajectory that's the chart of success I've never really had that for me success is about doing things that I'm passionate about and that I'll enjoy and that are going to stretch me and that are challenging and that I can be proud of I, I don't really care whether it's playing you know third spear carrier from the left or playing Hamlet if I'm excited by it and, and fired up by it and I know why I want to do it one of my acting teachers always said you have to know why you want to do a job and once you know why then you can you can't really lose with it I'm about to do a play at the National Theatre which if I you know say that to people at home they say oh you know proper proper but for me it's like if it's if it's fun and it's challenging and it'll stretch me and I'm I can get my teeth into it. So I'm I'm ambitious in that sense that there are there are I want to I want to constantly be stretched and, and and improve. I've like you performed in front of very sort of high flown people and royalty and and done that whole side of it and very important gigs and things like that. Um and great theatre companies. And I've also performed, you know, in pubs. So for me, it, it's it's all really essentially the same thing, and I get the same thing from it. Um, one just sort of there's more limos or something, <laughs> you know. There's sort of more stuff, but actually, it's still a person. The kind of stuff we do, you, there's a person, and you have to connect to them and make them have a good experience or make them feel the song that you're singing, and and that's really it. And anything else is just the sort of dressing, but. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm happy I do lots of different things and I do the things I enjoy so I'm lucky in that sense you've decided to close with a Sammy Davis song there are mm. so many to choose from why this? this one because Sammy had this one of the things I love many things I love about Sammy is that he and Leslie kind of talks about this touches on this he lived full out the whole time I think that's kind of clear anyone who sort of even has a general view of him he lived completely full out if he was in the studio he was full out as if he was performing in front of a thousand people so a lot of his early recordings you can feel the mic peaking because he's singing so loudly and you can, you can see him sort of just dancing away almost and this song um, come back to me he recorded live actually it was a it was a live album with Buddy Rich 
and it was after his show so it was recorded like four o'clock in the morning or something and after their shows in in vegas they all came to the sands the copa room buddy rich sat in on the drums and they recorded this album and i think they opened with this song and it's just a thousand miles per hour full out balls to the wall song number and it's like the charts that they wrote the arrangement horns brass everywhere i did it live once and um <laughs> the horn players look at this chart and I'm like what the hell is this <laughs> and the MD was like right let's go see you at the end thanks for listening if you want to get in touch and hear more interviews just like this one head over to my website garywilliams.co.uk